All right. Grab a seat. If you've got a Bible, would you grab it and open it to Ephesians chapter 5? We're going to be hanging out there today. My name is Dave. I'm one of the pastors here at Sedaris. Glad that you're here. Glad that you've come to consider with us tonight. We talk a lot about that as a community. Considering together the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we're glad that you're here to do that. If you didn't know already, uh, that great music that we heard at the beginning of the service and then right there during the four-minute conversation, that's Huey Lewis and the News. H-U-E-Y. Huey. Uh, Found out lots of people don't even know who Huey Lewis is, which just goes to show you that fame is always fleeting, so don't pursue it, okay? Because it's like Huey Lewis was as big as they got back in the 80s, early 90s. So Huey Lewis in the news, something of a spiritual experience, wasn't it? Hearing that music pumped out over these speakers. We're going to be talking about that a little bit tonight, the power of music. Some might even say it's similar to the power of love, but uh, shows that you guys don't know Huey Lewis, okay? <laughs> some, people t- some people say this, I don't know, maybe you say this, everything's better with ketchup, but I say everything's better with music, I think that's true, and since the Oscars are tonight, some of you now scurry for the door. <laughs> No, you can watch that on Hulu. Uh, But the Oscars are tonight, and uh, the Oscars are all about movies, so I thought let's talk a little bit about some of our favorite film characters of all time. And here's what you're going to realize. When you start to think of, on the big screen, the people that you just uh, think of as sort of larger than life, that are experiencing life to the max, that they're thriving, that they sort of uh, live this elevated uh, human experience, of joy and happiness, who comes to mind? One, Maria from The Sound of Music, right? Unbelievable, the hills are alive. Two, Belle from Beauty and the Beast, unbelievable this this woman. Three, Dave Collins from La La Land. Huge, great movie, if you haven't seen it, it's up for the Oscar tonight. If you don't understand the references because you don't know Dave Collins, look him up on the Facebook group. <laughs> okay. Uh, La La Land, the musical coming back in full force. Now, what do these people all have in common? Of course, they're known for being on the big screen as singers, singing life through and through. And there's something sort of we know intuitively, or we feel, we sense intuitively about people that are always singing, right? They just, they have the life that we want. They have this joy, this likability, this this human quality that we just can't grasp. And so we're drawn to people that are singing all the time. They're likable, uh, that means our perception of them is elevated, and we probably think that the person in and of themselves just has more joy. Maybe this is just me. My father sings a lot, and he seems like he's got a great life. I don't sing as much as him, but I found in my old age I've started to sing more and more. And so there's this thing about people that we're 
we're familiar with because they're always singing, that I think makes us look at them and remember them and, and, and think they, they figured out the key to life. And I think it's this key ingredient, which is the power of music. It has this ability to change the situation that we're in, no matter what. Um, speaking again of the Oscars, if, if you've ever watched a movie, you realize there's quite a bit of music in it. And it's interesting because the Oscars are all about motion pictures, yet 20% of the awards they give out are for music. Interesting, right? I thought we had another award show for that. But it just shows you how important music is. And you also know this if you ever watched deleted scenes on a DVD or something like that. And you watch scenes acted without the background music, without the sound editing, and what you realize is these people are not very good actors. Turns out it's the music that makes them seem like great actors. So, so we know sort of as human beings that music is powerful and we've always known that. In fact, every human civilization that's ever existed has had some sort of music or song. That we've never found a civilization that didn't have music as part of it. And the benefits of music and on both the mind and the body have always been recognized since since the ancient days, even the Greek philosophers would talk about music. Plato said this, uh, music gives soul to the universe, wings to the mind, flight to the imagination, a charm to sadness, gaiety to life, and life to everything. So the Greeks knew it. There's a philosopher by the name of Albert Schweitzer who says this, there are two means of refuge from the miseries of life, music and cats. Any cat lovers in the room? Yeah, come on. Legit. The discipline of music therapy began after World War II when musicians would play for recovering veterans of the war in hospitals around the United States. Patients... Um, would receive notable physical and emotional responses to music, which led doctors and nurses to request the hiring of paid musicians by the hospitals. Music therapy has proven to boost individuals' physical and mental well-being, elevate patients' moods, offset depression, promote movement for physical rehabilitation, counteract fear and apprehension, and relax muscle tension. Music is powerful, indeed. How many of you have, in a panic, maybe driving on your way to class or the night before, realizing that you haven't quite studied enough, flipped on a little classical music, a little Chopin, a little Bach, because you've heard the rumors <laughs> that listening to classical music will make you smarter? If you haven't done that, you need to try it. I think it might work, could be a placebo effect, but nevertheless, <laughs> we've heard that, and it's probably true. Uh, researchers have also uh, found repeatedly that music has an effect on the brain. Here's just one instance of many. According to a 2005 study, Stanford University, musical training improves how the brain processes the spoken word a finding that researchers say could lead to improving the reading ability of children with dyslexia, 
and other, other reading problems. Likewise, through the ages, Christian thinkers have realized the power of music and commented on it. Harriet Beecher Stowe, who is the great abolitionist, said this, where painting is weakest, namely in the expression of the highest moral and spiritual ideas, their music is sublimely strong. Jonathan Edwards, the great Puritan theologian and preacher, said this, the best, most beautiful, and most perfect way that we have experienced have in expressing a sweet concord of the mind to each other is by music. So throughout our own experience, throughout research, throughout the history of thought, Christian and other, we know that music is more than just a nice side dish to the human experience, but in fact, it profoundly changes our human experience. So the one question that I want to try to consider together tonight is this. Is this shared reality designed and for what? Or is this just a fortunate yet odd byproduct of time, chance, and evolutionary development? So I hope to answer this question and others as we continue our study in the book of Ephesians. So hopefully you're there with me by now, and we will pick it up in chapter 5, verse 15. Last week, we did the first 14 verses of chapter 5. This week, we will do the middle verses, and then next week, we will finish chapter 5. Paul says this, verse 15, look carefully, then, how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Now, verse 15. This is the sixth time that the Apostle Paul uses the word walk. So obviously he thinks it's important. Last week we saw he said walk as children of the light. So walking, he's talking about how you live your life, how you act, how you behave, the decisions you make. Very important, sixth time he said it. And what he says here is he says, look carefully. Now remember, last week we talked about, we just got to care more about living in step with the gospel, about living in a way that fits what we say we believe. And he's saying, examine, look closely at the way that you walk. Look at it, examine it. Identify, is it in step? Then he says, to not walk as unwise, but as wise. Making the best use of the time. So there's this idea throughout Jewish thought, Old Testament thought, that there are two ways, two paths. The way of God, which is wise, and the way not of God, which is unwise. And the reason that we want to choose the wise path is because we want to make the best use of the time that we have. To make the most of these fleeting days that God has given us. Because the days are evil. Meaning the day itself is not just going to give itself towards living the way of God, the wise way. It's going to fight against you, and so you must be careful, you must be intentional to walk in the ways of God. 
so as to maximize your life. I don't know if you've ever had this experience of driving somewhere. And I have this at least once a week, which means that I don't learn very fast. I'm driving, and my Google Maps is telling me to go this way or that way. But I think in my head, I think I can get there faster. Let me just exit the freeway here, because the freeway looks clogged. Let me just get on these side roads, and you, you watch. Well, inevitably, usually within the first two or three turns, I just start hitting myself, realizing I've made a very foolish turn. I've taken an unwise shortcut, realizing that I'm leaning on my own understanding versus trusting the greatness, which is Google. You can think of Google like God, and many people do. <laughs> They've got a few of the same letters. So uh, if Google is, is God and Google Maps is the Holy Spirit, then we are like the driver who thinks he can get there faster on his own. That's me. And time and time again, I choose my own way instead of Google God's way. And I'm always reminded, I did not make the most of my time. Had I just stayed on the wise path, I would have made the most of the time God had given me. Now, the other thing that we find in this principle of this word, the best, is this, this what I call the maximization principle, which is, this is how it goes. God always is advocating for the best. He's not advocating for an okay life. He never gives us commands to live an okay life. He always is commanding what he, based on his design, thinks is the best way to do life. Not just good or decent, not just better than most, but the best. And so he advises us, he commands us towards the best possible outcomes. Now, obviously, we live in a world that is imperfect. We live in a world that has fallen. We are east of Eden. And so, even if we follow the perfect commands of God, even if we listen to Google Maps, there could still be something that thwarts the perfect plans of God. But that doesn't mean that what he said isn't true. Let me give you an example of this. Because I think sometimes when we talk about the commands of God, sometimes we get confused by the language, right? So if I, if I say to you, I believe God's best design for the family is a man and a woman who love each other, and we'll talk about this next week, mutually submitting to one another out of love and reverence for Christ. And I believe that raising their kids works best when they work together to do that. That is God's best design. And some people will say, well, what about the single mother? Well, obviously, we have story upon story of amazing mothers who have raised children outside of this best design by God. Because the world has fallen. Things happen. Relationships break up. People die. And so that's obviously not the best. And so when we say that God says this is the best way, it doesn't mean that he doesn't work then through redemption in, a, in other situations. 
Does that make sense? But it's always important to understand that, to understand that God is pushing for the best. Now we've got to figure out what he's pushing for, and we too should push for that. And then when things don't work out, we continue to push for the best, given the circumstances that we have. So God is saying, and, and what we'll see in the weeks to come, he's going to start to paint a picture for us of what is the best way to do marriage, what is the best way to work as an employee or to be an employer, what is the best way to be a parent, to be a child, what is the best way to fight against the forces of evil in the world. And he's saying, if you do it the way that I tell you, you will make the most of the time that you have. Now, here's the problem. We don't know how much time we have. So every day we have to make the decision to live today towards the best that God has for us. This is what happened in my own life. I had a long-term plan. My long-term plan was to use my 20s to fully experience life and the world and travel and see everything that I could, make a lot of money. Then in my 30s, I'd work on my career. I'd advance my career. I'd, I'd, I'd climb the ladder. In my 40s, I'd be an executive, and I would uh, save away a lot of money. And then halfway through my 50s, maybe even at the beginning of my 50s, I could retire. And then once I'd retire, I'd have a lot of money. I'd give a lot of that to the church. Then I'd start giving my time to the mission of God. That was my plan. Then my sister died. And I realized how bankrupt the plan was. Because he says to make the most of the time that we're given. But he doesn't tell us how much time that will be. Which means I have to make the most of today, this week, this month based on the best that God has revealed to me. And I can't just wait and say, in the long run, it'll all even out. I'll live my first half of my life for me and my second half for God. And together they make a good life. We can't do that. We live every day based on what God says is the best for us. Make sense? That's so important as we get into this next part of the passage today. Verse 17, Paul says this, Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And here he is talking about the Holy Spirit. Do not get drunk with wine, but be filled by the Holy Spirit. Now here's what's interesting. And drunkenness here he's talking about is in, 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 in the form of wine, but you could substitute any form of mind-altering drug. Anything in here fits the category of being drunk. Here's what happens when you get drunk. You ignore understanding because your mind becomes altered, your mind becomes numb, your mind becomes distracted. You know what happens when you're filled with the Spirit of God? 
you seek understanding. The Spirit inspires you when you read the Bible. The Spirit helps you know how to pray and discern the will of God. When you are drunk, it makes you insensitive to the situation and to the people in your situation. When you have the Spirit, the Bible tells us that the Spirit makes you sensitive to others, sensitive to the situation. When you're drunk, it makes you say anything. Insert story. <laughs> I'll let you fill that one in. Makes you say all sorts of things, first things that come to your mind. But the Bible tells us when we are filled with the Spirit of God that the Spirit actually helps us know what to say in the moment. When we are drunk, it can make us contentious. Proverbs 21 says this, Wine is a mocker, beer a brawler. True. The Spirit, however, makes you self-controlled, gentle, loving. Now here's why this is so important, Paul will tell us that we must be filled with the Spirit of God. It's a prerequisite in order to accomplish what he's about to tell us in the context of marriage, in the context of the family unit, in the context of our employment, in the context of every part of life. If we are not filled with the Spirit, there will be no way that we can live out these best commands that God is about to tell us through the Apostle Paul in the book of Ephesians. So you want to do Christian marriage well? you got to be filled with the Spirit. You want to do Christian vocation well? You've got to be filled with the Spirit. You want to do Christian parenting well? You better be filled with the Spirit. You want to lead a fellowship group well? You better be filled with the Spirit. You want to plant a church well? You better be filled with the Spirit. You want to resist the devil well? You better be filled with the Spirit. Now look at the results of being drunk. He uses this word debauchery. I think we kind of like think we know what it means. That guy's being debauched, okay? But <laughs> it literally means to be wasteful. Now think of it in the context. To be filled with the Spirit means that you redeem, you make the most of your time. To be drunk means that you're wasting time. Illustration, one world il illustration, one word illustration, write this down, college. How many people are wasting a lot of money and a lot of time in college? Yeah, let's just get real here. Man, when I went back to school and I realized how much I could learn at an educational institution, I realized how much time I'd wasted. No, it wasn't all because, <laughs> now you're like, oh gosh, he was drunk the whole time. No. Talk about that later, okay? Let's not get off track again. So Paul's telling us, listen, you need to make the most 
of your time that God has given you. And the way to do that is not to be drunk, but to be filled with the Spirit. And we see this juxtaposition of being drunk in the Spirit all, and, and being filled with the Spirit all the time in Scripture. In fact, when the Spirit comes on the brand new church in Acts, the book of Acts, at the very beginning, people thought they were drunk. They were speaking in other languages. People were hearing the gospel preached in their native tongue, but the outsiders looked in and thought they were drunk. So there's always been this juxtaposition that there's something similar about those who are filled with the Spirit, an excitement and a joy that's similar to those who are drunk, but it's totally different. One is redeeming the time, making the most of it, the other is wasting it, debauchery. So now you got to be asking yourself the question, okay, Seems like I should be filled with the Spirit. How does that happen? How am I filled with the Spirit? And this is what's so interesting. I just love the Word of God this week because I learned something that I'd always intuitively known, but I learned it in a brand new way this week. Look with me at verse 19. So he's just said, you need to be filled with the Spirit. And then he says this. By addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. He's saying, you need to be filled with the Spirit, and here's how it happens. Sing to one another. And it just made sense of my whole childhood. My dad was always singing to me. I never knew why. Turns out he was trying to fill me with the Holy Spirit. This is one of the ways that we're filled with the Holy Spirit. This is one of the reasons that we come to gather at church. This is why we sing songs at church. This isn't an attractional method. This is how we are filled with the Spirit of God, by singing psalms together by singing hymns together, by singing spiritual songs together, by playing instruments. And you see it again and again and again in Scripture. So many passages about the people of God singing together. Here's one. Acts 13, 6 says this. While they were worshiping the Lord, singing, and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart Paul and Barnabas, Barnabas, for the work I've called them to. So here's an example of the congregation gathering together, singing spiritual songs together, and in and through that, the Holy Spirit speaks to them. And that just happened. Speaks to them. Whoo, speaks to them. Somebody's about to go on the mission field here. <laughs> Who is it? <laughs> Raise your hand. If you felt that inside you, okay. Mateus, you're up, bud. Okay. Um, they speak to them, and the Holy Spirit tells them, Paul and Barnabas are meant to go out and share the gospel with the Gentiles. It's amazing. Another example in the book of Acts. In the book of Acts is the account of the early church. Same cat, Paul, out on the mission field in a city called Philippi with his boy Silas, and here's what they're doing. They're literally casting out demons from a gal, a gal who was a fortune teller, and they cast out demons. You think that takes a lot of 
having the Holy Spirit to cast out an evil spirit. Yeah, so they exercised a lot of the spirit that they had. But instead of being grateful, the people become upset with them because this fortune teller actually made a lot of money with tourists because tourists would pay her money to tell their fortune. And so they get upset with Paul and Silas, and so they beat them half to death. Severely beat them, and then they throw them in jail. They put them in shackles. You think they're low in the spirit at this point? Having just exercised the demons, having just been beaten down by the people that they came to help, have been thrown in jail, literally chained up to the wall, low in spirit. And here's what they did. They sang songs to each other. They sang hymns to each other. And they prayed. And what do you think happened? The Spirit of God not only filled them up, but filled up the entire jail. And it says an earthquake shook the ground and shook the jail cells open. Every one of them, not just theirs, every jail cell, and shook the chains off of each and every prisoner. And the lights went out. And the jailer, knowing what would happen to him when it was found out that all the prisoners had fled, grabs his sword to fall on it and kill himself. When Paul and Silas say, no, 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 stop. We're all here. Nobody's left. And the man's life is spared. And the man goes and tells everyone he knows what had happened. And it says his whole family became Christians. Now, can you imagine what kind of power Paul and Silas would have had in and inside of themselves to convince a bunch of thieves, murderers, to remain in the jail after the jail cells had fled open and their chains had been broken? Those, those guys were speaking with some power that wasn't their own. And people saw it in them. And they said, whatever you say, Paul, whatever you say, Silas, we'll stay right here in our cell. And they were filled up through praying together and singing together. I love that story. It's powerful. Singing psalms together, singing hymns with one another is powerful stuff. Hope you experience that in your own life. Now remember, when we gather together, we talked about this a few weeks ago. When we gather together, our primary audience is God. We come together to offer to Him our songs of praise. Partially because we're filled with the Spirit. Partially out of obedience. But our secondary audience is one another. We're singing to one another. This is what we'd call the horizontal audience. And we sing to one another, Scripture tells us, because it's one of the ways that we fill each other up with the Spirit. Now, what kind of singing are we talking about? Well, he mentions three categories. He, call, he, he says, sing the psalms. He says, sing the hymns. 
And then he just says, sing songs or spiritual songs. Now, why does he mention all three of these? Um, I think he does this, not because there's a huge difference, but because he's showing that there are multiple genres with which we can sing spiritual songs that fill us up with the Spirit. So when he says psalms, he's speaking of both the book of songs, of psalms, and he's also talking about just Jewish songs, okay? Then when he says hymns, this is the word that was most used to talk about Greek songs that were sung, particularly in religious settings. So he's saying, well, they could be sort of Jewish-type songs, or they could be sort of Greek-type songs, as long as they're spiritual songs, which is to say this, there are many forms of music that are useful in the filling with the, for the filling of the Spirit, but each and every one of those songs, if they are to truly fill you with the Spirit of God, must be inspired by the Holy Spirit. That's what he means by spiritual songs. So the composer, the writer of the song, and I think the person singing the song, if they have the Spirit, then that would make them a spiritual song worthy to be used in the corporate gathering or in a living room or, or even one-on-one -on -one to be filling music. Does that make sense? So there is something to say that it's not just any song that accomplishes what Paul is talking about here, though most, we can say most all music stirs us in some way, stirs us spiritually. There's a particular type of song that fills us up with the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't think that has to necessarily be worship music, okay? I think there's all sorts of music that's made by people who have the Holy Spirit that can accomplish this. I call this the U2 factor. You know what I'm talking about? You listen to U2, many people will go to a U2 concert and feel like it was a, the greatest spiritual experience of their life. Well, I think they got two things going for them. They're wicked cool. I mean, one named artist, they're always cool, Bono. Love that guy. But Bono is also a Christian. I've seen enough interviews, read enough of things that he's written and said. I believe he has the Holy Spirit with him. So I think he's double dipping here on both great music, his fame, and that he's got the Spirit of God with him. And so the music he makes is powerful stuff. It's called the U2 Factor. There's other guys like it. Right after I lost my sister, there's a guy named Matt Carney. And Matt Carney, he helped get me through the hardest season of my life. Matt Carney, I believe, is a Christian man. And so he, though not singing worship music, was singing music that stirred my soul. In verse 19, Paul calls it music. Uh, it says, making melody to the Lord with your heart. So it's music that comes out of the heart. And if it's coming out of a changed heart, a heart that's been regenerated by God, it makes it a very special kind of music. Now, you might be asking yourself, okay, Dave, why in the world does God tell us to use music to fill us up with the Spirit? Why does music accomplish this? And you can say, why does music accomplish this in a secular setting? 
Like a Dave Matthews concert. I know you guys are old. Dave Matthews lives in Wallingford. At least he used to. I think he sold his house. You should know about him. Because if he walks into our church, I'd like to ask him to lead worship. <laughs> or if you see him at a coffee shop, feel free. He's been known to hang out at Herkimer on the Ave. I've seen him there. And I, I had a rule. I said, if I see him, I'll ask him to lead worship. But I had always said, if I see him in Wallingford, and technically that was U District, so I let myself off the hook. And I didn't ask him. But if you see him, you've got to ask him. But man, Dave Matthews concert, if you've never been to the Gorge, seen a Dave Matthews concert, spiritual experience. So it's both talking about a secular experience or a Christian experience, which is to say, why does music move us in the way it does? And the answer is because God has designed music to do that. And he's designed, I think, our brains to function in a way that music moves it. This is why we all have this shared experience of music that is so transformative in a way. Now, God has designed us in this way, and he's designed music in this way, and he's designed it to the very deepest parts of our biology. I believe he's designed it all the way down to the neuron in our brain that fires with all of its connections. And when we were doing the Consider concerts, in the years that followed my sister's death, we started these concerts, these benefit concerts, and we'd ask people to consider life's biggest questions, consider, is Jesus who he said he was? And I always intuitively knew that there was something powerful about music that opened you up to these sorts of considerations in a way that non-musical experiences couldn't. So we decided to do that in the, con in the context of a concert. And in doing that, I found this book. I think I was just, this was back when there was uh, Barnes and Nobles still around. And I just saw this book. It's called This Is Your Brain on Music. The Science of a Human Obsession. And I said, whoa! That's what I intuitively know. So I picked it up. I started reading it. It's a New York Times bestseller. And it started to talk about, from a very secular perspective, what happens to the brain when it hears music. I'll just read you a little passage here from the introduction of this book. And this guy's not a Christian, he's just writing. He says this, Contrary to old simplistic notions that art and music are processed in the right hemisphere of our brains with language and mathematics in the left, recent findings from my laboratory and those of my colleagues are showing that music is distributed throughout the brain. Through studies of people with brain damage, we've seen patients who have lost the ability to read a newspaper but can still read music, or individuals who can play the piano but lack the motor coordination to button their own sweater. Music listening, performance, and composition engage nearly every area of the brain that we have so far identified and involve nearly every neural subsystem. Could this fact account for the claims that music listening exercises other parts of our mind and that listening to Mozart 20 minutes a day will make us smarter. And he goes on and on and in depth about how music works and how every aspect of music interchanges together and how powerful it is. But clearly, music does something to your brain. It changes it. It's unique amongst all of the categories. It's even unique, he talks about, in comparison to art because it happens over an extended time. 
And there's direction and anticipation and excitement that are all part of music. And it's a powerful thing. And science proves that it's a powerful thing. And science proves that everyone can experience it. That's what I love about music. If you're blind, you can't necessarily see art. If you're deaf, if you're standing close enough to the speakers or the musician, you can hear the vibration. You can feel it. Music can touch everyone. Music does something crazy. It's like it opens up or shakes free these new pores that experience the spiritual realm. And if in that moment when we expose these new pores, we are allowing spirit-inspired music to come in to fill us up, then we can allow the Spirit of God to fill us up. So it shouldn't surprise us when we read time and time and time again in the Bible, the people of God singing songs, playing stringed instruments, all sorts of instruments. And you see people singing at the birth of Jesus. Angels always singing. Why are they always singing so much? When we speak of heaven, oh, it sounds like it's always going to be singing in heaven. Some theologians even think that singing is the language of heaven. That you won't actually speak without singing. Which terrifies me, because I'm not a great singer. But I think God can redeem that. Always with the singing. Always everywhere. Because I think he's designed it that way. It's like we're using our full mind. And there will be parts of our mind that haven't even been exposed, that will be exposed, I believe, in heaven. And there will be sounds that we can hear and understand that we never could before. So here's my question to you. Here's my question. What are you allowing to be the soundtrack of your life? I think it's clear that music will open up your mind, it'll open up your heart, it'll open up your soul. But what are you letting in once it's opened? Now I'm not saying here that we all have to throw away all our music that doesn't have the title Michael W. Smith. Look him up, very good guy. You don't have to get rid of all your non-Christian music, I'm not saying that. Non-Christian music is not bad. But if you never want to fill your soul with spirit-inspired music, then you got to start asking yourself some tough questions. you got to look carefully at your life and say, why in the world do I stay so far away in the most spiritual of moments from the lyrics and the melodies that are inspired by the people of God. Tom Wells, a theologian, says this. Excuse me. Tom Wells says this. He says, Our songs are not the cause of our loss of the sense of God's greatness. Those songs are surprisingly influential. No, our songs reflect this loss. Singing God-centered hymns is desirable, but more than that, it is needed. We sing what we feel, what we believe. When once we rediscover the greatness of God, we will sing it. Our song will echo 
our conviction. So just like we said last week, if we are changed by the gospel, we will want to walk differently. So too, if we are changed by the gospel, when we comprehend or rediscover the greatness of God and the death and resurrection of Jesus, we will want to sing of it. We will want to fill our minds and our hearts with the things of the gospel. And so maybe you say, I can't stand Christian music. It's just not well produced. It's just not good. You're either totally missing the truth of the gospel or you've got some unnecessary mental block that is keeping you from what God wants to use to fill you up. And so you need to unplug whatever that is. You need to get rid of that. You need to just start trying to listen to Christ-inspired music. Not exclusively, but you need to start doing it. We've got this app, Sedaris app, and on it, I won't go there now, but you can, you can find it pretty easily, under the Connect tab, and you can actually find a link to our Spotify, Sedaris Spotify mix. You say, I don't want terrible music. Well, we try not to put terrible music on there. We try to put good Christian music on there that will fill you up. So start with that. Yeah, maybe it's not the best music out there. Maybe it's not winning Grammys. But it is inspired by the Spirit of God for the filling up of the saints. So maybe you're struggling in your marriage. Maybe you're depressed, anxious, emotionally hurting. Maybe you're bitter. Maybe you're angry. Maybe you're cold. Maybe you're cynical. Maybe your job is killing you. Maybe your boss is killing you. Maybe your kids are crushing your energy and your will. Maybe they're rebelling against you. Maybe you feel like the devil is after you, that he's on your heels, that he's pressing in on you, and that you don't know what to do. Friends, listen to the singing of the saints, to psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and melodies played on instruments that bring glory to God and remind us of the gospel and tell us of the truth that we are redeemed, that God is one, that he is the victor, that there's nothing that can get in the way, that there is no trouble here or to come that can keep us from the love of God. You must use this because this is the way God's designed to fill you up when you're low. And if you stay away from it, if you stay away from church, if you stay away from Christian music and you keep Ending up in the same place, maybe it's time to try some of this, what Paul says right here. Martin Luther, the great reformer, said this. Let's read this to you, if I can find it. Martin Luther, the great reformer said this, he said, beautiful music is the art of the prophets that can calm the agitations of the soul. It is, the, it is one of the most magnificent and delightful presents that God has given us. He says, my heart, which is so full to overflowing, has often been solaced and refreshed by music when sick and weary. Next to the word of God, the noble art of music is the greatest treasure in all the world. 
And he says this, and the devil does not stay where music is. So Paul is about to tell us in the next weeks to come about the devil who you have to fight against. And if you refuse to use the music, the singing of the saints, you are going to be fighting with one hand behind your back. This is Martin Luther saying it. The man who changed the world with his mind and his writing. The man who changed the course of the church of Jesus Christ for the good and has affected the souls of millions and millions of men and women from century after century. And clearly music for him was an indispensable part of his Christian walk. Why? Because, like you and me, God designed him. He designed his mind and his body and his soul to be filled up by the Holy Spirit through the singing of psalms, through the singing of hymns, through the singing of spiritual songs and the playing of melodies. So do you want to live a life of meaning and purpose? Do you want to redeem the time God has given you? If so, you must be filled with the Spirit of God. You must be filled with the Spirit of God. And one of the ways to do that is by surrounding yourself with the music and the songs of the saints. Let's pray. Father God, we need you to fill us with your spirit because you've asked us to do things and to be things that we cannot be without your spirit. You've called us to go places and to change the world in ways that seem impossible. You've called us to be your hands and feet in the world and yet we feel weak. We feel like we can't even do our own lives well. How can we be you? And the answer is, you fill us with your spirit. God, we pray tonight. We want to be filled with your spirit. We want to be filled with the gospel truth. We want to be filled like Martin Luther and all the great saints so that we might do something of eternal meaning and purpose for you, God. Do that tonight and every time that we meet through the singing of songs inspired by the Holy Spirit to one another for the filling of the Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.